Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, what more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. Hey guys, I have a podcast that I think you'll really enjoy. Proof, the investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here is releasing its highly anticipated second season where they investigate the murder of 18-year-old Renee Ramos. The first season, which if you haven't listened to yet, you totally should, saw the release of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend, Brian Bowling. And thanks to evidence unearthed by proof, on December 8th, 2022, both Daryl Lee Clark and Kane Joshua Story were finally freed after 25 years behind bars. With that same investigative drive, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, and this time, they are on the streets of Manteca, California, to find out who really killed Renee Ramos. In proof, Murder at the Warehouse, you hear how, on June 5th, 2000, Renee's body was found buried beneath a pile of debris inside a new Home Depot building. And how, despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, her boyfriend, 18-year-old Jake Silva, and 33-year-old Ty Lopez were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee, by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. In a scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cop of murder. Some mysteries may never be solved. That, however, adds to their intrigue. On January 5th, 1935, a man was found inside a hotel and began a mystery that, along with many twists and turns, has never been solved. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. On the afternoon of January 2nd, 1935, a man walked into the hotel president in what is now the Power and Light District of Kansas City, Missouri, and asked for an interior room several floors up. Saying his name was Roland T. Owen, the man who witnesses said they believed was in his early 20s, gave a Los Angeles address, and when the whole thing was squared away, the staff directed the well-dressed man to his room. Only paying for a one-night stay, Roland seemed to have no bags with him, had a visible scar on his temple, and cauliflower ear. 
leading the staff to come to the conclusion that this man was a professional boxer, possibly just looking for a place to stay between his matches. With the bellhop, Randolph Propst, leading the man up to the 10th floor, polite small talk revealed that the new guest spent the previous night at the Mulebach Hotel, but finding the $5 nightly rate a little too high, which is about $100 in current money, he decided to find a new place and landed on the President Hotel. Entering room 1046, which was on the inside of the hotel as per his request, Randolph watched as Roland took out a hairbrush, comb, and toothpaste from his overcoat pocket, what appeared to be the extent of his unpacking, and placed the items above the sink. Immediately leaving the room, the bellhop locked the door, gave Roland the key, and both men went about their evenings. A short while later, Mary Soptic, one of the hotel's maids, came in for her afternoon shift and went straight to room 1046, where she was surprised by the new guest. Apologizing for the intrusion, telling him that the previous night a woman had been staying in that room, Roland told her that she could go ahead and do what she needed to do. While he was in the room with her, Mary began cleaning and noticed that the shades were drawn and that the only light in the room was a dim lamp. She would later state that, even when she encountered him on the other occasions during his stay, Roland T. Owen seemed, quote, either worried about something or afraid. She said he put on his overcoat, brushed his hair, and when he left the room before she was finished, he asked that she leave the room unlocked because he was expecting some friends in a few minutes. She did as she was asked, and at around 4 p.m., when she returned to the room with freshly laundered sheets, she found that all of the lights were turned off, and Roland was lying fully clothed in the bed, completely silent. Visible with the light coming from the hallway, she saw a note on the bedside table that read, Dawn, I will be back in 15 minutes. Wait. The following morning, January 3rd, Mary Soptic returned to room 1046 at around 10.30 a.m. and found that the door was locked. Since it can only be locked from the outside, she assumed Mr. Owen must have left for the day. But when she opened it with her keys, she found the guest sitting there in the dark exactly where he had been the night before. That's when the phone rang, and answering it, Roland told the caller, quote, No, Don, I don't want to eat. I am not hungry. I just said breakfast. No, I am not hungry. While still holding the phone, but seemingly forgetting about the caller on the line, Roland asked Mary about her job as she picked up the room. Wanting to know if she was responsible for the whole floor, and if the president was a residential hotel as well, he complained again about the mule box high prices until the job was done and Mary left the room. She returned again at around 4 p.m. to bring fresh towels, and this time, she could hear two men talking inside room 1046. Knocking this time, Mary later said that a loud and deep voice, not the one she had heard when she first spoke to Roland, called out and asked who was knocking. She responded, telling him that she brought fresh towels, but before the door ever opened, the man called out again saying, we don't need any. Finding it odd, knowing full well that there were no towels in the room since she herself took them out that morning, Mary listened to the unknown voice, left, and went about the rest of her day. Two hours later, a woman named Jean Owen of Lee's Summit came in and checked into the President Hotel. She had spent the last few hours shopping in the city and feeling unwell, 
she decided to check in for the night rather than risk the drive back home. She was given room 1048, and her boyfriend, who worked in a flower shop nearby, came to visit at around 9.20 p.m. Staying for about two hours, Jean would later tell officials that, while there, they heard what seemed like men and women talking loudly and profanely all over the floor. Possibly explaining the louder-than-usual noises, Charles Blotcher, the hotel's elevator operator, later reported that when he began his shift at midnight, he noticed that the hotel was much busier than normal and that there seemed to be a loud party happening in room 1055. He later mentioned a female visitor whom he saw in the hotel visiting male guests in their rooms, who, at the time, he believed might have been a sex worker. First visiting room 1026, just five minutes later, she summoned the elevator again, and when she came inside, she expressed her concern that the man, her client, was not in room 1046 like she suspected. She claimed he called her on her previous visit and wondered if he was instead in a different room, since she could see through the room's transom window that a light was on in room 1046. Remaining on the 10th floor after the conversation, the operator was summoned again, and when the door opened, he found the woman standing there and this time took her back down to the lobby. An hour later, he took her and another man up to the 9th floor, and at about 4.15 a.m., he picked her back up and took her back to the lobby. Leaving the hotel for the night, about 15 minutes later, the woman's male companion called the elevator to the ninth floor, and when he entered, he told Charles that he could not sleep and he needed to go out for a walk. Whether this activity is related to what was later called the mystery of room 1046 is unknown, but given the fact that so many questions remain, all movements within the President Hotel that night seemed to warrant an explanation. Like the fact that at around 11 p.m. on January 3rd, a city worker driving on 13th Street near Lydia Avenue saw a man dressed only in an undershirt, pants, and shoes running into his path and flagging him down. When the worker stopped, the man apologized and said he mistook his car for a taxi. Asking if he could take him to a place where he could more easily find a cab, Robert Lang agreed and allowed the stranger into his car, later telling the man, quote, you look as if you've been in it bad. The man swore he would kill someone else the next day, presumably in retaliation for whatever had already been done to him. In the mirror, Robert saw a deep scratch on the man's arm and that he seemed to be cupping his hands as if he was catching the blood from a more severe wound. Regardless, Robert drove the man to an intersection where taxis often wait for fares during the night. The stranger thanked him, got out, and honked the car of a taxi parked nearby. Drawing the attention of the driver, Robert drove away. On January 4th, at about 7 in the morning, a new switchboard operator, Della Ferguson, came into the President Hotel to start her shift. As she was preparing to make a wake-up call to room 1046, she noticed that the light was on that indicated the phone was off the hook. Randolph Probst, who was on shift again, went up to the 10th floor and noticed that not only was room 1046 locked, but that the do not disturb sign was hanging from the door handle. Knocking loudly on the door, Randolph heard a voice telling him to enter. Realizing that he could not because the door was locked, he knocked again, and again, the voice called out that he could turn on the lights. 
Still unable to enter due to the lock, Randolph resorted to shouting to the door to hang up the phone so the operator could get through, and he left back down to the lobby. Telling Della that the guest in room 1046 was likely drunk and to give him an hour, when she checked again at 8.30 a.m., the phone was still off the hook. This time, another bellboy, Harold Pike, was sent to the 10th floor and found that the door was still locked and that the sign was still on the knob. This time, Harold let himself in with a key and found Roland Owen lying in bed naked in the dark, apparently drunk. The light from the hall revealed a few dark spots on the bedding, but rather than turn on the lights in the room, Harold went to the phone and saw that it had been knocked on the floor. Writing the machine, he left the room and went about his day. Then, shortly after 10.30 a.m., another operator made attempts to call room 1046 and again noticed the phone was off the hook. Randolph went up again, seeing the same do not disturb sign and using a key, he decided to enter after his knocks failed to get any response. He opened the door and found Roland Owen on the floor on his hands and elbows with his head bloodied. Turning on the lights, Randolph put the phone back onto the hook and noticed that there was blood on the walls of both the room, bathroom, and on the bed. He ran quickly down the steps to get some help and returned with the assistant manager. However, when they went to open the door this time, they found that they could only push it forward about six inches. Determining that the guest must have fallen in front of the door, they tried to coax the man off the ground, and finally, he did so. Allowing them entrance, Roland went and sat on the edge of the bathtub while the assistant manager called the local police. Joined by Dr. Harold Flanders of the Kansas City General Hospital, they found that their guest had at some point been bound with cord circling his neck, wrists, and ankles. His neck had further bruising, suggesting someone tried to strangle him, and there were stab wounds in his chest, just above his heart, and three wounds that had punctured his lungs. With additional blows to the head, causing a skull fracture to the right side, after Dr. Flanders cut the cords and asked Roland who did this to him, he responded with the word, nobody. Asking what caused his injuries, he claimed he had simply fallen and hit his head on the bathtub. After responding no when the doctor asked if he tried to take his own life, Roland was rushed to the hospital where, upon arrival, he was completely comatose. Shortly after midnight on January 5th, 1935, Roland T. Owen took his final breath and passed away inside of the hospital. Placing his injuries somewhere between 4 and 5 a.m. the morning of the 4th, the Kansas City Police Department quickly launched an investigation and immediately tracked down Jean Owen. Interviewing her because of the matching last names and her proximity to room 1046, Jean was detained after telling police all about the noises she heard the night before. She remained there until her boyfriend came in and corroborated her story, and she was later released. Heading back to the President Hotel, investigators began documenting not just what little they found, but more specifically, what they did not find, which was a suitcase or really any personal belongings brought in by their victim. Finding nothing other than what Randolph Props claimed he saw when Roland checked in, the only thing they did find that might be of use was a tag to the necktie he was wearing, which indicated that it was made by a New Jersey company. There were no signs of any of the amenities offered by the hotel, 
like soaps and towels, and there were no weapons found that could have caused his many injuries, which ruled out the possibility of a suicide. Between the binding and the two used glasses found by the sink, with one missing pieces, and another found on a shelf, detectives theorized that there must have been others inside the room, and searching a bit more diligently, found a hairpin, safety pin, and unsmoked cigarette, as well as a full bottle of sulfuric acid. Finding four fingerprints on the hotel's phone, small enough that police believed that they must have belonged to a woman, they found that none were a match to any of the ladies who admitted to entering room 1046. At a loss, police sought help through the press, but with the exception of Robert Lane, the city worker, who said the man in his car that night was the same man now sitting in the morgue, no one came forward with any information about Roland T. Owen, which is why police started to wonder if that was indeed this man's real name. Contacting the LAPD to inform the next of kin, their suspicions were confirmed when the police said that no one of that name was living in California. So they sent off the prints to what was, at the time, the Justice Department's Bureau of Investigation, later the FBI, in hopes of it matching someone in their more extensive system. In the meantime, the Kansas police, imploring the public to come forward with any information about their murder victim, got a call from the neighboring hotel, the one that Roland complained about, claiming that he did indeed match a guest who stayed there on January 1st. Claiming he checked in under the name Eugene K. Scott, they went searching for that identity as well and, again, came up empty-handed. There were no records of a Eugene Scott or a Roland Owen anywhere. Over the next couple of months, a number of people came forward identifying themselves as loved ones. Though none of the potential identities stuck, investigators continued to work the case, but with dead end upon dead end hindering them, they went ahead and decided to bury the body of their victim. That's when something strange happened in the already pretty peculiar case. On March 3rd, 1935, newspapers reported that the mystery body was about to be buried and mentioned which funeral home was going to be handling the event. The day of the planned burial, the funeral home received a call from a man asking that it be delayed so he could send the necessary money to, instead of placing this man in a potter's field, move him to the Memorial Cemetery in Kansas City. Offering to pay for the grave and service, the man said he wanted to ensure that the victim was buried next to his sister. Though a seemingly kind gesture, the funeral director warned the caller that he would have to tell the police about the call. And the caller, unbothered, said he knew that and that it was okay. When the director asked why the victim had been killed, the caller claimed that the man had an affair with one woman while engaged to another, and that both women arranged an encounter with him at the President Hotel to exact their revenge. Right before hanging up, the caller had one last thing to say. Cheaters usually get what's coming to them. Postponing the funeral, on March 23rd, the funeral home received an envelope with a carefully lettered address, using a ruler to ensure perfection, that contained the $25 necessary to bury the victim, wrapped up in a newspaper. Two additional envelopes of $5 each were sent to a local florist to arrange the delivery of 13 American Beauty roses to the grave after a similar call was made to them as well. Both calls, it was later learned, came from payphones. 
In the card, in disguised handwriting, were the words, Love Forever, Louise. While police dealt with the strange new updates coming from the funeral arrangements, images of the victim were being circulated nationwide. And finally, a woman named Ruby Ogletree of Birmingham, Alabama, came forward and said that Roland T. Owen looked a lot like her son Artemis, who she claimed had not been seen or heard from since he left to hitchhike to California in 1934. Though she kept up correspondence with her son, she worried that he had somehow made his way to Kansas and was the man found inside the President Hotel. Artemis Ogletree was born in Florida in 1915 and was one of three of Ruby's children. During his childhood, Artemis had an accident with some hot grease that left a sizable scar on his head and left the part above his ear hairless. In 1934, he left his family with dreams of heading to California, and to help out, he was often wired money by his loving family. Realizing that Roland was indeed Artemis Ogletree, Ruby told the police that she had received several letters from her son in the last handful of months, long after he was found near death in room 1046. The first, which came in early 1935, was postmarked in Chicago and immediately raised suspicions since it was typewritten, and as far as Ruby knew, her son did not know how to type. With his highly colloquial style raising further red flags, she said that another letter came in that May and claimed that he was heading to Europe. This was followed quickly by a special delivery letter saying his ship was sailing that day, both being sent from New York, and that August, Ruby got a call from Memphis, Tennessee, with a man telling her that Artemis had saved his life in a fight, but that he could not call her because he was now living in Egypt. He said her son had recently married a wealthy woman, and the couple was now living in Cairo, but that during that fight, Artemis had lost one of his thumbs, which is why he could not write to her anymore. She said she spoke to the caller for about a half an hour and recalled how he spoke wildly and irrationally, but seemed to have some firsthand information about her son. Though she gave police the man's name, it was never released to the public, and no records of Artemis arriving in Egypt were ever found. She did, however, link her son to a third hotel in Kansas City, the St. Regis, where he allegedly shared a room with another man. Whether or not this man was the Don he spoke of at the President Hotel could never really be established. In 1937, as the case grew colder by the day, the NYPD arrested a man named Joseph Martin and charged him with the murder of a man whom he shared a room with, whose body he placed in a trunk to be shipped off to Memphis. Among his several aliases was the name Donald Kelso, and according to a story in The New Yorker, the KCPD matched samples of his handwriting to those letters sent to Ruby Ogletree. No charges, however, were ever filed against Joseph in connection to Artemis's murder, and the case remained open. Many reviews have taken place over the decades, but no new evidence has ever been found. The last real update in the mysterious case came in either 2003 or 2004, when John Horner, a local historian at the Kansas City Public Library, fielded a call from someone out of state who claimed that they were helping to inventory the belongings of an elderly person who had recently passed. 
Among their items was a shoebox that was filled with newspaper clippings related to the case of Roland T. Owens slash Artemis Ogletree, as well as one item that was, according to the caller, mentioned in many of the newspaper stories. Not identifying themselves nor the item in question, John did not make his conclusions public until a 2012 retelling of the story on the library's blog. The case, however, remains unsolved. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear a terrible thing happened on January 6th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.